about more than just research. It's about community, too. I see you in the community. What's going on this weekend? <laughs> Welcome to the to the community board podcast with your host Miguel Valdez, and today we have a full house. And I want to say thank you to the Minnesota Research Link, to the community board podcast, to Mayo Clinic, and our guests here today. We have guests from the West Coast, Minnesota, and St. Paul, Twin Cities, uh, uh, West Coast, Midwest. <laughs> How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Thanks for having us. Guys, um, I want to, well, why don't you guys introduce yourself? Okay. My name is Miriam. I work with Seth Holmes at UC Berkeley doing research, but I actually have also been involved in some action in the Twin Cities. Your name? Uh, my name is Miriam Magana Lopez, and I've been volunteering with Minnesota Immigrant Rights Action Committee, known as MIRAC, for the past okay. year and a half. Where do you live? I live in Minneapolis. And what do they do? Uh, Mirac. Mm -hmm. Mirac has been organizing for the past 13 years around immigrant rights, um, both locally and now we're trying to change our platform more statewide, creating a st uh, sanctuary state platform to make Minnesota more inclusive to immigrants. Okay. Seth? Dr. Seth? So my name is Seth Holmes. I'm a physician and I'm an anthropologist. I'm what anthropologists do? Anthropologists study social systems and cultural systems and especially the way that different groups of people interact with each other, understand each other, understand their lives. Um, so I'm a cultural or sociocultural anthropologist who focuses on health and medicine. Um, and I work mostly in contexts of immigration, especially related to farm work and especially related to indigenous Mexican immigration in the United States. Okay. And you were invited to present? Yeah, so the Kern Center Grand Round Series on Unexpected Conversations invited me to come from the University of California, Berkeley, and UC San Francisco to give Grand Rounds today. Oh. And then um, related to that, Community Health Services, Inc., which used to be Migrant Health Services, um, helped organize with other people a community conversation last night at University of Minnesota Rochester around immigrant immigration, health, and discrimination. Um, so it's been a full couple days, and it's been interesting to learn things alongside lots of other people. Okay, and we also have here our friend Minerva La yes. Scientifica. How are you doing? Doing good. How's your New Year? New Year, it's been great. It's still a lot of snow. Keeping up with your New Year resolutions? I didn't make one. I was smart. Hey, I want to ask you, doctor, and everybody, please uh, talk about it. Um, what do you do? You believe um, stereotypes are real? Mm. What a question! And why they exist? Yeah. Some do they apply? Are there are there kind of weight? Right, right, right. I think what's important about stereotypes is that we have to be super careful. Mm -hmm. I think what I like about anthropology is that through the research method of ethnography where anthropologists live with and learn from communities um, and the... What is ethnography? Ethnography is really living long-term with a community. So for example, okay. for my book, um, I lived for a year and a half with indigenous, mostly undocumented Mexican immigrants um, both in their home village in Oaxaca 
in the borderlands of Arizona in um, working pruning vineyards in California and then living in a labor camp and picking strawberries and blueberries in Washington State. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned a lot from these communities and from other populations who interact with them. So ethnography is living with other people, taking notes on what's going on, taking notes on what people are saying, but also taking notes to some degree on what you're learning from your own body and experience of being there. And that challenges a lot of stereotypes. I probably thought I knew a lot about immigrants and a lot about Mexicans and a lot about Mexican farm workers. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, a small city surrounded by farming and wheat and apples and ranches. And um, probably a lot of people in Spokane think they know a fair amount about migrant farm workers, but actually living with migrant farm workers and sort of as a migrant farm worker to some degree, um, I learned a lot of things and a lot of those stereotypes were dispelled. So there are times that some stereotypes have some kernels of reality in them, but I think the most important thing about stereotypes is we have to be super careful um, and be willing to question the knowledge that we have received from society, from politicians, from TV, from our parents, from ourselves, from lots have of Have you things. ever experienced or have you, have you ever benefited from some mm -hmm. stereotypes of you being a white Caucasian male? For sure. And uh, educated. Yeah, white Caucasian male, for sure. There were times, so during my research, I remember um, going to a Burger King with some of the indigenous Mexican families I lived with and worked with. And um, they ordered food and I ordered food. And the food that they got wasn't exactly what they ordered. Like the fries were wrong and the burger was a different size or something like that. And when we sat down, they were talking with each other about, oh, we ordered this many fries and we only got this. And I said, from my background experience, said, well, why don't you ask them to change it? Because in my experience, when my parents did that, the people usually changed it. Sometimes they were really nice about it. Sometimes they were kind of nice, mean <laughs> about it. Um, but usually it was changed. And they looked at me like, you know, you have no idea what our lives are like. And they said, if we did that, we would be asked to leave here and then they said to they said to each other and then to me they were like oh my gosh he should try it I want to see what happens and they were like go, you go ask for the different size of things for us and so I went up and said actually they ordered this many of this and um, and then the person changed it and was kind of nice mean you know um, and so there are ways that I saw in becoming friends with in Spanish there's the word convivir Mm -hmm. to live with or to share life with or something like that that we don't really have a good translation in English. Maybe we're not as good at it in, Engl in English-speaking societies, I don't know, but um, in living with people and becoming friends with them um, and learning from them, I also saw and experienced how I was treated differently. And me being treated differently based on those stereotypes of maybe me having power or me being worthy of fixing the fries or whatever um, also became data in my research. So then I had to analyze why am I getting treated differently than they are? And what, what is it about the way our society functions that certain people, especially in the US white people, are treated better in certain ways? 
and other people, including immigrants and lots of other people, Native Americans, etc., um, minoritized groups are treated differently. Um, so I've I've definitely experienced that. I'm sure there are times I've experienced it without realizing it. But I, the only times I can articulate to you are some of the times I realized it, and some of those times were when I was doing this ethnographic field research, community-based research. But there is a stigmas, I mean stigmas, uh, stereotypes in society in every single thing. Mm -hmm. When you're driving, somebody doesn't move, and you're like, ah, who's driving? Mm -hmm. You want to see who's like, oh, and then you say, oh, yeah, of course, and then you honk. Mm -hmm. We, as a society, we deal with uh, stigmas constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How dangerous is to run your work in, a, in the medical field by those? Sometimes, you know, if we have to get rid of those stigma when a new patient comes mm -hmm. in, that interaction or a client or whatever mm -hmm. interactions that we have with another individual. Mm -hmm. First, to be aware of, uh, of how we're thinking, mm -hmm. you know, how how that affects on on the medical field mm -hmm. and just studies. What do you have experienced when when uh, as a provider we forget to okay, I need to remove these stereotypes and just listen mm -hmm. or ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. What has been your experience of you guys in the field? Mm -hmm. um, well, sometimes, you know, we, it's, it's hard as a, we need to be aware. First, aware that we dealing with, uh, with, with the problem. In this mm -hmm. case, uh, stereotypes. Mm -hmm. We all have stereotypes, mm -hmm. I guess, from little kids that start growing up and they listen to what parents mm -hmm. say and that's their culture that yeah. they're growing with. Mm -hmm. In the medical field, how do you, how do you approach or what has been the approach on you studies mm -hmm. that we, that we need to, try to make those changes? A few things come to mind, but I wonder if... Yeah, I don't know if I can comment specifically on like a patient provider experience, but I do think that we, like you mentioned, we grew up in a society where these perceptions about different communities are ingrained in us and the way that communities are perceived in the media and the way that they're perceived in the news and the way that we frame the way we talk about different communities. And it sort of creates this implicit bias that you develop. So it's not necessarily something that was consciously thought or you, you consciously um, think about, but it's there. And I know that myself as a Latina immigrant, um, I do notice the stereotypes um, a lot because I experienced them growing up with my family. But then also stepping away from that environment and being in an environment like a university and also being a light... Uh, a light skin color Latina that sometimes can pass as white and being able to also hear those experiences by people who assume that I'm not Latina and you kind of get the idea of what people are thinking. Um, but I think something that's super important is you realize that these things do happen and they are ingrained and I know that I also sometimes have biases even though I don't want to because I know how problematic they are and it's sort of this ongoing conversation that I have to have with myself where I have to stop and reflect and be like, why did I have that thought? Did, did that what the person did made me realize that, or is this something that was ingrained in my mind in my way of thinking about someone that looks like this person that made me jump to that conclusion? And I don't think that we're we're gonna get to a point where we're gonna figure it out completely, but I think that it's sort of this like responsibility that we each have to continue this conversation with ourselves and with others, and to really be critical about why um, these thoughts or these assumptions um, or these stereotypes are coming up in your mind. 
No, yeah, I completely agree with Miriam, especially being like a white skin Latina, a first generation, and I was born here. So that's like, I think acknowledging also the privileges that we come with and also helps us recognize the implicit bias biases that we might deal with or maybe we were raised with or just society as a whole that puts on us. And I think once we start becoming, I guess, more woke, you know, I think that's a better way of saying it because then you realize you're like, oh, and you start changing your mindset little by little. Yeah, it's not perfect, but you, like, acknowledge that you did something wrong. And I think when you, like, acknowledge the stereotypes and then how people are being experienced or, like, how people are being treated, then you see that and then you're able to, like, I guess, open the door for them to speak, you know, because I think... Also recognizing, like, you can't be the voice for everybody, but you could probably open the door and let them speak using, I guess, your privilege for them to talk about what the problems are going on. So I think it is, like, an ongoing battle, and especially it's being more brought up now, and I'm kind of happy about that, um, to be able to talk about stuff like implicit bias, or I think they call it your unconscious bias, and being, like, trying to change that mindset a little, you know, that this exists. And it just might be, like, not, like, conversations or maybe they just, like, react differently body-wise. But, you know, it's, like, something that you notice. And I think once I've been, like, more woke, I guess, that's the only way I could say it, um, you realize these little tiny things, like, these microaggressions that you see also. Mm-hmm. And then you have to acknowledge that and be, like, oh, why is this? Or, like, I guess me versus my brother, who's, like, darker than I am. He ha- experiences things, but he's also a male, but I'm a female. So mm-hmm. he experiences privilege as a male himself, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's just realizing all of that and just taking it all in and trying to do the best that you can to not, I guess, go back into the stereotypes or stuff like that. Seth, early you shared with us about um, the importance to learn cultural humility. Can you share a little bit with our audience? Uh, was that consistent? Sure. So or what would it be the ideal setup? So my... The people I've learned cultural humility from, especially Melanie Turpelon, who's located in Oakland, and Jane Marie Garcia, who I believe is in Davis, wrote an article um, challenging the field of cultural competency um, to not go in making lists of traits or characteristics about different ethnic groups that social workers, educators, healthcare providers should learn but instead to go in with an understanding that people experience the world differently based on how they're treated, based on their backgrounds, and that we as educators, health providers, etc., should have curiosity and humility to ask questions and be open and curious and learn from our patients, our students, about what their experiences are. Um, and trainings that they have given are very much about that that curiosity about people who are different from us. Even if we think they're the same as us, they might not be. Um, so that's been, I think, an important um, addition to conversations about how do we interact as a diverse society with each other, um, especially those of us who are in relationships where there's a power differential as an educator or a health professional or whatever it might be, um, or a researcher. Um, and there have also been some people who have been thinking about what they and I are calling structural competency and structural humility, where we're also trying to develop curiosity and an imagination to understand the social, political, economic structures, the way our society is structured, that pushes different categories of people in directions that they're more likely to experience life in a certain way than in another way. 
and that that's often unequal and not chosen and often unfair. Um, and how do we as educators, as health professionals, as researchers need to take that into account? Um, so I think both of those are super important. Okay. So when they told me about you coming, I was, so this is the stereotype I thought. Oh, he's going to come with his yoga mat, his big star book coming from California. Asking for vegan food. Vegan food, <laughs> sandals, nice tan. Did I get any of those right? No? I didn't bring any of that. I did do some downward dog stretches this morning. Though. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so some, some stereotypes. Do, right, right, right. They do apply. Right, right, right. But we shouldn't be always yeah. counting on them. No. We have them in our head, and we should mostly question them, I think. Mm -hmm. There's one, as part of the structural competency and kind of cultural humility conversation, <clears throat> some of us, including Jim Quesada, who's an anthropologist at San Francisco State, who, for some reason, San Francisco, though far away from alligators, are the, are the gators? <laughs> and Kim Su, who's a physician anthropologist, she's the head of medical director of the Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, and Philippe Bourgois, who's a medical anthropologist in the Center for Social Medicine at UCLA, we thought about what should health professionals be aware of in terms of how social inequalities affect patients. And we thought about this way of talking about vulnerability as caused by social structures and not just caused by the individual patient. Um, and one of the aspects that we, one of the questions we encourage health professionals to ask themselves is, may some service providers, including me, find it difficult to work with this patient? Mm -hmm. Is there something about their accent or color of their skin or clothes they wear or how clean or not clean the clothes they wear are or some way to behave or something that might, that I might read into, that I might be uncomfortable with, or that I might, that there might be some stereotype about. Um, some social scientists, medical anthropologists, um, Sarah Willen at the University of Connecticut and Haida Castaneda at University of South Florida have written a fair amount about deservingness as an idea that even if we know that someone has a policy or legal right to something, we might have subtle understandings that they don't actually deserve it really, or they don't deserve the best version of that. But someone else might be totally amazing and they totally deserve the best version of that. Yeah. And that's where some stereotypes and subtle understandings of people can really cause problems in the clinic or in healthcare. So we, we have all this knowledge. We know what we think we know sometimes. Yeah the answer or the problems that we have. Well, when you have a 20, 15 minute doc visit, mm -hmm. doc, doctor visit, uh, the doctor is on the, on the rush. Mm -hmm. He needs to see so many patients. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just get to whatever to read on the screen right mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't even do eye contact with their patient. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, uh, if we're dealing with uh, with a client, patient who is from a different culture from us. Mm -hmm. They probably grow, grown up or were born in the same city as the doctor. Mm -hmm. But still, you're still part of a different culture and different environment. Mm -hmm. You are brought up different. How can we, with all this knowledge that we have, 
why would it be the policy? What bigger systems do we need to be changing? Mm -hmm. To to put in a doctor, not burn out, burn out uh, providers, mm -hmm. which is more and more cases mm -hmm. every day. To to have a a, a, a visit where the healing start from mm -hmm. that moment, because mm -hmm. unfortunately, within 15, 20 minutes, uh, you're not gonna, uh, you know, you don't find solutions, you're gonna be putting a band-aid mm -hmm. sometimes. What would it be the best? And if you have a magic wand. Do you have any thoughts on systems change? I mean, I would say we would have to have a whole overhaul of our healthcare reform. <laughs> I think that we don't, often think about like we focus so much on how to change that 15 like what to do in that 15 minute interaction whereas like what do we take a step back and had a system that allowed us to have more than 15 minutes mm. to talk with a patient to really get to know a patient um why is it that healthcare is about profit and not about keeping people healthy um so taking that step back like in an ideal world we would have you know, maybe the system of healthcare where you didn't even have to have a health health insurance. Everyone can just go to a clinic or a hospital or an ER and get treatment, and there's no need to have a third party that decides what you get, what they are willing to cover and what they're not willing to cover. And maybe we have um, training that allows doctors to really have the time that they need to meet with patients and get to know them, rather than um, trying to make changes in this already constricted system. Um, so, I don't think there's anything about like, I mean, I think things like education are important and, you know, whatever we can do within the system is great, but you said a magic wand and I would say that I would completely overhaul our healthcare system and really think about how we can create a system that focuses on keeping people healthy rather than focusing on profits. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I, I, I was thinking of that because we have, uh, I used to do education at the schools uh, with four, four graders and also for uh, the adult literacy program. And, and the kids will get it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, they're not the ones that decision making when they go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. Well, parents also get it, but they also, that question comes out like, oh, if it's so bad, why did they sell it? Mm -hmm. Why do we keep selling? Coke cheaper than water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why there's chips and bread mm -hmm. way cheaper than a bag of apples? Mm -hmm. And and they're trying to stretch that dollar. Mm -hmm. And and on top of that, if the providers know familiar with the diet that those individuals consume, mm -hmm. when they do recommendations, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. And and expect you know the. The, yes, the patient obviously have to do a lifestyle change, mm -hmm. but if they don't have the tools or knowledge mm -hmm. of how to read a label, mm -hmm. what is a balanced meal, what, a balanced meal that reflects whatever they eat, mm -hmm. how can we make it even balanced? Mm -hmm. So if the schools or, or patient education department um, doesn't do the cultural humility, mm -hmm. I think that we're just going to keep... Mm -hmm. Uh, tripping with the same rock, mm -hmm. same problem. Yeah. So, I think that's true. I think we need 
training education that incorporates cultural humility and structural competency and structural humility. I think we need everyone to have access to health care. We have an election coming up. Everyone should vote for everyone to have health care. Um, Minnesota has the opportunity to consider um, including all immigrants in Medicaid and other health care options, um, which is really exciting. Um, and I think we're at a moment where our society can make choices about what kind of society do we want to be. Do we want the other members of our society, um, our neighbors, or the people we drive by or walk by or work with to... People could grow your food. Or grow your food, or build your housing, or fix your housing, um, or serve your food. Do we want them who make all of us healthy by giving us food and housing to also have access to healthcare? And do we want them to be treated well in healthcare? And I, I think that's super important. And then I agree with Miriam that, well, and I want to add something. So not all physicians have only 15 minutes. Some primary care physicians have less than 15 minutes because we are often double booked. And some specialties have more than 15 minutes. And sometimes if we look at, if I, as a primary care physician, look at what a specialist is, some specialists are dealing with in their amount of time, it seems like I'm needing to deal with more in less time. So how is our reimbursement system set up to incentivize maybe away from primary care people having enough time or social medical social workers not having enough support, um, et cetera, nurses not having enough nurses per patient? Um, those things are really important. We, we also need to question the system and push it a little bit to be different. Um, and Mayo has the opportunity, you know, with its own kind of reputation for doing things in a streamlined way, in an integrated way, to do things a little differently and see if it works better and then tell people about it. So maybe Mayo can give primary care physicians a little more time and maybe Mayo can um, fund interpreter services and medical social workers who can connect people with resources a little bit better and then tell the rest of us how it worked. All right, we'll keep you updated. <laughs> <laughs> Doc. Would you be willing to share a little bit about your experience? How do you you talk a little bit about your um, travels with uh, migrant workers mm -hmm. who works in the fields in California, all the way from uh, where they're originally from in in South Mexico and Oaxaca? How did you get involved in that project? What was your first experience going hmm. down there? And mm -hmm. what brought what was that moment when you said, "Okay, I'm going to go to the route." Where, where this? Mm -hmm. Well, so migrants are coming from. Starting in fourth grade, okay. My parents wanted to expand my and my brother's horizons by understanding the world differently, and they took us as they volunteered um, for usually two weeks. I think each summer they volunteered as kind of host parents of an orphanage in Mexico, southern Mexico, so that the host parents could have a couple weeks off and so that we would see a different part of the world. And I think they didn't know how much it would affect them and me and us. And um, I learned that because of where I was born, what family I was born into, and the social system I was born into, including racialization and all of it, that um, I, w I understood that I had certain capital, social capital, privilege, whatever, 
and that other people didn't, and they had a different experience. And I became especially interested in or concerned about or frustrated by the way that the United States at times pushes Latin American countries to do certain things, politically or economically, and that that often is in more the interest of the U.S. than the other countries. And then often then the U.S. complains about some of the outcomes of that, including immigration or violence or um, asylum seeking, etc. And when I was in medical school, I knew that I wanted to learn, I, I knew that I wanted to take care of individual patients as human beings, and I also knew that I wanted to think about what made people sick in the first place and what we could do to change that. And so when I was starting to study anthropology, I had already, in the summers in medical school, I was a backpacking guide in Yosemite and other places in California. And one of the other backpacking guides um, had been a, had become a social worker working with immigrant farm workers in Washington State. And he told me that even though everyone imagines that Washington State is this super white state, there's actually a lot of immigrants there harvesting apples and strawberries and blueberries and things that Washington is kind of famous for. And that no one was paying, a lot of people were not paying attention to those communities and not listening to them and not um, raising awareness. And so I went one summer um, and visited a farm and met with the social worker and met with families who were living in the labor camp. And all of those different groups in different ways said, you know, we would like to learn more about what's going on here, basically. So the farm worker families um, said to me, we would like people to know more about what our lives are like because we're feeding people. And the farmer realized that the people who worked on his farm were more diverse than he real than he knew and said, oh, we'd like to learn more about this. Um, and so, What year is this? Uh, 2000 something, I'm not sure, three, something yeah. like that, four. Um, and so then I got permission and got approval from the university and met with people and uh, prepared to do this uh, year and a half living with uh, farm workers and migrating with them. And then now, and then we've stayed in touch, they've stayed in touch with me and now we're ongoing collaborators. The youth in the families, the, some of them second generation or one and a half generation, are um, co-directing a documentary film about their lives and about their families and um, yeah, we're continuing to work together, so it's been a a blessing for me. Have you, do you find any similarities between the natives from Mexico, from the natives mm. from the United States? That's a good question. I, I wish... Washington being one state yeah. of natives, too. Yeah, yeah. I would rather turn that over to other people to answer, including the native Mexican immigrants and Native Americans. Um, I have, as a colleague and outside observer and white guy, have seen how historically and presently Native Americans in the U.S. and Native Mexicans in certain ways have simultaneously been, um, in certain ways, celebrated or their art or 
um, aspects of their history have been celebrated or also distorted, but then they've also been treated badly. They've been pushed off their land, treaty agreements have been unwritten, someone else is in charge of what the rules are about who counts as a member or not, um, and that's um, that history of discrimination and dispossession has really important health outcomes. Um, I've also seen Native Mexican immigrants and Native Americans organizing and resisting in powerful ways. There are binational organizations between Mexico and the U.S. that are indigenous groups working together, and then some of those organizations and movements are working with Native Americans in the U.S., raising awareness and organizing for things like health care access and being treated well, or um, having land that's not polluted by you know, an oil company or whatever it might be. Doctor, what is the next steps in your work that you guys doing? Well, Life in Cali? Uh, Miriam and I are working with uh, some of the immigrant youth working on that documentary film and trying to figure out how to finish it. Find an editor who knows how to take the footage that the youth... Oh, it's okay. Just put it down. That's our timer. <laughs> that the youth and their family collected and then um, my plan is to work on a book about medical education and the subtle ways that at times medical education trains us to understand social inequalities as normal or natural or deserved, um, partially in hopes that we might imagine a new way to do medical and health professional education. So that's, those are the two main projects I'm working on now. Okay. Well, now I'm gonna turn it a little bit, a little bit more personal questions, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to start with Miriam. Miriam, mm -hmm. what kind of music do you put when you start cleaning around your house? If you do any cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, I have a very random playlist, but I would say that a song that I continue, or like artists that I continue to put on is Selena, just on um, loop. As I clean. Cleaning? As in cleaning and dancing, because you can't clean without dancing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about you, Doc? I'm a, I, I oh, like on the Bob car when you're Dylan in the traffic, whatever and, and Yusuf, who used to be Cat Stevens. So, Yusuf, Cat Stevens. I don't know who's Cat Stevens. So, like, Spotify okay. has decided that I... Uh, Spotify probably <laughs> thinks I'm very strange, because it has one section of music each day that it gives me that's like down tempo no words music because when i'm writing or thinking i'll listen to that kind of music then it has like 80s 90s music because sometimes i'm in that mood in the car i want to sing along with something sometimes i'm feeling folk music cat stevens etc um sometimes i listen to like uh, corridos, like mm. narco corridos, because some of the people I work with listen to that. And so sometimes I'll click on what Spotify thinks I want to hear that day, and it'll be a super interesting mix of all of that. Nice. Um, so, yeah. What about you? When I'm cleaning, well, I made a playlist on Spotify called Saturday Cleaning. Oh. And it's a bunch of Sonora, Los Angeles Azules, some Chente, you know? Yeah. But that's because my mom would listen to that when I was growing up, so it's really nice. And it's like, you know, Pop Out the Fabuloso and all mm -hmm. that um it depends on my mood i really miss the bay area trap music 
because the radio stations here in Minnesota don't put hip-hop stations on the radio. It's like Christian stations and country <laughs> and political. And if you grew up in the Bay Area, it's like 106.1, 94.9. It's like a bunch of rap music, so I kind of try to find that on Spotify. But then I also listen to Spanish Christian music because it reminds me of the church back home, too. Okay. Yeah. So it depends on the mood. Yeah. Well, uh, let me share with you guys. I, I listen a little bit of everything. I listen um, mostly Spanish, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I like I reggae, mm-hmm. a bunch of reggae. I like um, Tostos Muertos. I like uh, a Juanga. Gotta, gotta put some Juanga in there. Of course. And there, uh, but uh, I try to, I don't know, it just puts you in the zone where... Yeah, keep bringing dishes. Uh, I can keep cleaning. <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't know, music for me is, is, a, is a, it's a moment where you can, I don't know, brings you to uh, good good places mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and I'm imagining when you were with um, doing travels with your the the coworkers or in the fields, because you, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, I don't think you haven't shared with us here. Did you spend a year and a half, you said, on mm-hmm. the fields mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. picking strawberries and fruits with these uh, workers? During the summers, yeah. During the summer hours. Yeah. yeah. So, and I I was fortunate here when I first came to Minnesota. Uh, I was homeless for a while, and then somebody, a uh, Mexican national, asked me, oh, you can come over, you can, you can stay with us. Yeah, so he said... Mm-hmm. And I show up, and it was uh, we were like sixteen males in mm-hmm. one bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. and and that was a life changing experience for me. Mm-hmm. I imagine you mm-hmm. when you were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of music? They anything they sing along, whistle, just I something mean, that will bring you back <laughs> to the fields. Well, one thing, I mean Ariel Camacho y los Plebes del Rancho okay. is one group that I brings me to certain memories, but one, so a couple, three times maybe, I went with a group of youth who are indigenous Mexican from Washington State, Oregon, California, down through Arizona to Oaxaca, to their uh, parents' village. Wow. And twice we drove the whole way. And there's one um, young woman who's amazing from Washington State at the time. I think she was 14, but I could be wrong. And she DJed over Bluetooth the whole time. And it was an amazing mix of, like, her parents' kind of music, mm-hmm. like Ariel Camacho, and then um, Pharaoh, who I didn't know who that was, and then, um, like, the Jonas Brothers, <laughs> like, all mixed together. And I, I'll, I'll, anytime I hear any of that music, I remember how uh, kind of refreshing it was to hear one of those artists after the other because I don't imagine there are a lot of places where those artists would imagine themselves to be in the same playlist um, so well, yeah music has something that connects everybody and you said also um, in your talk today about um, why um, why it's important to get to know your neighbor get to know who who lives in your society and why it's important to take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you for coming and agreeing to do this this show. And anytime you're back in the Midwest or if I'm by California, I'll send you an email and we'll make a, another episode. Great. 
Anything that you guys want to share? Mm, not now, no. No? Thank you for hearing. No? <laughs> thank you. I just want to invite everybody. Thank you for watching. Um, and I want to invite everybody to follow us on Facebook, on their community board podcast, on with our partners, Minnesota Research Link. And you can find this podcast at, in SoundCloud and iTunes on their community board podcast. I noticed we weren't recording at the beginning. But then, it. Yeah, and then I, I, I picked it up, but you can see the full episode here in our Facebook page. So we we cover. So all right. <laughs> Stay tuned and Doctor, let's go get you on play. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Well last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new in Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see a menu? To get more culture.